You're listening to SBS News. Thank you so much for joining SBS. Thank you for having me. Can I firstly take you to the free trade negotiations with the European <coughs> Union? Australia went to Osaka uh, expecting some new information or a new deal to be on the table. Why wasn't it? Well, I understand that I'm the first political uh, figure from Brussels visiting Australia after the uh, Osaka uh, breakdown, if you like. Uh, and I understand that my role is not to uh, either fuel the controversy of what actually happened in Osaka or cry over spilled milk. Uh, I'm here on a, on, a, on a mission to recompose, to mend fences, to start afresh. And uh, the European Union and Australia share so much uh, uh, in terms of values, understanding of the world, the system model of uh, democracy and society. So I think that the FTA inevitably would come to seal the intensity and the depth of our strategic partnership was not possible in Osaka, but it will happen down the road, I'm sure. I'm sure uh, the Commission has reflected on what unfolded. And the sticking point from the Australian side, from what's been said publicly, seems to be there was an expectation of some kind of new deal, of some kind of additional uh, negotiating point to help get Australia across the line. Why wasn't it there? Okay, uh, again, I, I do not want to reproduce the Osaka uh, misunderstandings and I do not want to fuel the disappointment that inevitably resulted from events in Osaka. Uh, there are all sorts of opinions of what really happened. Um, uh, we had an important offer on the table uh, of one billion Australian dollars in terms of access to our market. Uh, that could have been improved if discussions would have uh, continued. Uh, we were close, but it was not possible. Uh, we understand that uh, Australia has provided uh, free trade uh, to other partners in this region. We would hope that that would be the case for us as well. It was not possible, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, I think my presence here should be interpreted as, as the willingness not to lose the perspective of getting uh, an FTA agreement and also having Australia participating in our flagship research and innovation program, uh, Horizon, as is the case for all our partners, Israel, New Zealand, Canada, mm. UK. Do you come to this parliament with perhaps a little bit more to offer? You, you're sending a signal, you say, but is there anything sort of tangible as a part of that signal? No, I want to be very clear. Trade is not part of my portfolio responsibilities, and I do not come here to negotiate or reopen the discussion. I'm here to work on my areas of responsibility, which is uh, security, intelligence, migration, uh, culture, education, skills. I'm in charge of the people-centric policies of the European Union, but I hope that my presence in this country will help in diffusing some of the um, uh, tensions that developed uh, in Osaka and after Osaka and show clearly that there is a perspective down the road for an FTA agreement. I know it's not in your sort of portfolio area of responsibilities, but will you have perhaps a chance to at least speak to the Trade Minister, for example, while you're here? 
No, I do not have a meeting scheduled with the trade minister. I have a meeting with the uh, representatives of the federal government that pertain to my portfolio responsibilities. Well, let's go there because at the moment the conflict in the Middle East is really overshadowing uh, everything that is happening here in Australia and across the world. We're following very closely the latest uh, portion of the ceasefire process and the hostage movements. Uh, one of your colleagues, Joseph Borrell, uh, recently said that the best outcome and the most important step to take is um, for a Palestinian state to be part of this outcome. Do you share that position and why is that position the best way forward? Well, you are quoting my colleague, uh, Joseph Borrell, who is in charge of uh, our uh, diplomatic relations, but the uh, perspective of a two-state solution is not something new. That was uh, agreed in Oslo. That was part of the Oslo agreements uh, that, uh, in theory, would have taken us there a long time ago. Unfortunately, this was not the case. Uh, since 7th of October, the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel and the conflict that is now uh, developing, uh, clearly now we, we have a, it's a blessing in disguise, if you like, but we still have a chance in this post-conflict horizon to rediscover Oslo and uh, offer the necessary security and peace guarantees both to Israel and to the Palestinians to live in peace, but with an important caveat, that Hamas will not be part of this arrangement. Hamas lost the right to be part of this arrangement on the 7th of October. Do you think, though, Israel, in what it's described as self-defense, has gone too far in retaliating against the Palestinian people? Well, this, the answer to this question, I think it's something that uh, cannot be given from a commissioner's office in Brussels or from a parliament uh, room in, in Canberra. Uh, there are people who have to establish that on the ground, agencies, uh, uh, UN uh, structures. Uh, for me, the fact of this first successful exchange of, of hostages is a tangible uh, proof that uh, there are rules and there is a certain understanding which is necessary as events are unfolding but is also crucial in the post-conflict horizon. Can I take you to the current status of some countries within the EU at the moment where people like GERD builders have um, come to significant prominence? We are seeing the rise of a sort of anti-Islamic, anti-migration sentiment it is supported by you know, the, a public voting in favour of some of these policies. So what does that say about current sentiment in the EU and whether or not this could in fact impact on those countries remaining a part of the EU? First of all, let me tell you, Anne, that we are proud of our democracies and we in Europe are not afraid of elections. We're a union of democracies. So um, uh, there is respect for all uh, uh, electoral mm -hmm. outcomes. Of course, you, you, you're mentioning uh, the Netherlands, but a few weeks ago we have elections in Poland, another important member state, where the result was exactly the contrary. The political forces of, uh, of uh, moderation uh, managed to win the election over a government with strong populist uh, uh, and, I would say, anti-European views. So having said that, um, clearly as we move to the European elections next June, we're interested to see uh, how uh, people will assess our efforts in Brussels to produce good policies that make sense to their problems. The best way to defeat populism is by producing good policy. 
And I'm sure that uh, uh, once we have all the policy ingredients in place to find meaningful solutions on migration, on, on economic governance, on the managing inflation, building a more autonomous and resilient Europe in terms of energy, uh, all this will translate into some sort of electoral outcome that would be positive for Europe next June. Are you worried, though, that it's inevitable that there'll be some fracturing of the EU as a result of some of these people who have been considered fringe uh, views, have, holding fringe views in the past, now coming to such prominence politically? Well, uh, of course, we have to monitor these uh, trends in public opinion. Uh, that's part of, of, of what we do. But at the same time, I would counsel against... Uh, 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 view that everything is uh, doomed to failure and the Europe would collapse and the uh, European Union will be over. I mean, we went through this argument during the Brexit campaign and we clearly saw that uh, uh, they didn't materialize. Uh, every European country which is not member of the European Union wants to become member of the European Union. That says something about the appeal of our, uh, of our union and of the historical, if you like, uh, necessity of reconciling a, a continent that was torn by wars, uh, hate, in the last century. Will you make space for those views and the people who back those views at the highest levels of the EU? Will they be at the table and be a part of the decision-making process? If they win an election and they're able to form a government, they... Place in the in the on the table of governance is guaranteed. But, but will you be? Put, I, my question, I guess, is probably more along the lines of: Are you prepared to push back if if you don't agree with some of these viewpoints? No, because we have a system of governance of the European Union which is rules based, so it's not arbitrary. Uh, we uh, our member states decide by qualified majority, and we have a European Parliament which is directly elected by. Uh, 450 million uh, Europeans. So the rules for taking decisions are there and everyone who aspires to shape European policy would have to play it by the rules. How much more difficult do you think the task will be to get these migration policies at an EU level uh, through uh, over the coming weeks given the sentiment that's being sort of measured in parts of the EU at the moment? I say precisely because of the sentiment measured in the EU, it's now more urgent than ever before to get to this big European agreement on migration and asylum policy. Um, we have the biggest and better regulated single market in the world. We produce 22% of the world GDP. We have the second world currency of reference. It's, it's disappointing that we still do not have a migration policy, but we're getting there. And I, I hope that uh, in a few weeks, certainly before Europeans go to vote in June, for the first time Europe would be able to show the populists and the demagogues that Europe can have meaningful solutions to their problems. And for those people who have, particularly in our audience, watched for a number of years now the stories about uh, asylum seekers trying to reach places like Italy by boat, what will be the future for those efforts? Our policy, as is being crystallized into this big European agreement, is like a house with three floors. The first floor is 
relations with countries of origin and transit, strong partnerships with these countries. The second floor would be border management and uniform border procedures. And the third floor would be solidarity and burden sharing. And finally, what, what is it that you are hoping to gain from your conversation with our immigration minister? Well, I'm, I'm very interested in, in uh, hearing uh, Australian uh, best practices in terms of organised legal pathways on how we can uh, work together and learn from the Australian experience of organising organised mobility of workers into your job markets. These are areas that uh, Europe is very interested in in the years to come once we have our migration policy in order. And offshore processing? Uh, I do not agree with offshore processing. We have tried extraterritorial solutions, didn't work in the past. Uh, uh, we're still very much looking for a system that would apply EU law on EU territory. We'll leave it there and we thank you very much for your time. Thank you.